where you and I can connect. It's a show that embraces a 360-degree look at womanhood. It's our voice, our perspective. It's what we care about. And it's how we feel. Empowerment through conversation is what it is. I'm Miss Wanda. This is full circle. Girlfriend, this is a place where you and I can connect. It's a show that embraces a 360-degree look at womanhood. It's our voice, our perspective. It's what we care about, and it's how we feel. Empowerment through conversation is what it is. This is Full Circle. Thank you so much for joining Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda. It is a beautiful Saturday, and I am so excited to have my guest here in the studio with me today, Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald. She has come a long way. I'd like to say she came a long way from me, but that's not really true. But I'm glad that she took a few moments out of her busy schedule to come and join Full Circle and have a conversation that's super important in our community. So let me introduce you to Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald. She is a Associate Professor of Sociology and the co-director for the Center for Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. She's come a long way. She is going to be at Underground Books later on today. So if you have some time, please come on out. Join us at Underground Books today from 2 to 4 p.m. And she is going to host a book discussion and signing of her book, Marriage in Black. We are going to dig all into that and all of the work that she's doing. But I'd like to go ahead and introduce to you Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. McDonald. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so excited. You know, like I was telling you on air, uh, off air earlier, that when I saw that you were coming and I was reading a little synopsis about your visit out here, I was super excited to reach out to you as best I could because I feel, you know, Full Circle is about empowering our community. And these conversations need to happen. And when I saw you and I went and did some homework on the work that you were doing, I was I I was like, I have to have her on my show. So thank you so much for taking a few moments of your time to be here. It's my pleasure. So I want to just jump right into it. Usually when I start the show, I have guests just introduce themselves. Who is Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald? Well, I'm actually uh, fairly well known in town here in Sacramento because I lived here for many, many years. I moved here from North Texas when I was six years old and did all of my schooling here. I went to, uh, what schools did I go? Freeport Elementary School, went to John F. Kennedy eventually for high school. And then I went to Mills College for my undergraduate degree in written communication. I went to Stanford for a master's degree in applied communication research worked a while in the Bay Area, and then decided to obtain a PhD, and I came back this way to Sacramento to attend UC Davis. So I've spent a lot of time right here in Sacramento. My son was born here. Uh, I have lots of family members. A lot of people in Sacramento know my family through the group called the Voices of Faith that sang here for 40 years as a gospel group. Uh, We were actually focused on preserving the Negro spiritual, so we had a very specific uh, repertoire. Uh, And that was an idyllic childhood I had, being able to perform with my family and sing 
God's music all over the state. Eventually, our furthest tour was to Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, and we just had the most wonderful time meeting all kinds of congregations of people, black people and other kinds of people, mm-hmm. with this rich music of ours, that, you know, this gospel thing that nobody has but us. Right. Uh, that was fantastic. Such a rich childhood. Mm-hmm. And a fondness. I hear the fondness in your voice for Sacramento and yes. all of the memories that have taken place or that were created while you were here. Absolutely. I have t- scores of friends here. Um, I recently was in San Diego. I was in Temecula visiting my mother-in-law, and I uh, had learned through Facebook that my, some of my friends were about. So I met with two of my friends in San Diego for lunch who I hadn't seen in years. And it was like we were right back where we started, Pat Carter and Vaughn Rainwater. Um, uh, And I've stayed in touch with a lot of other people over the years. I spent the night with a very dear friend of mine, Rochelle Combsey. So, uh, and I haven't been here in about five or six years, so there's a really, um, I don't know, my heart is going out to the city today. Glad to be here, back among my people. What changes have you noticed in Sacramento? You mm. said you haven't been here in five years, but yes, you grew up here. I did. What are some of the changes that you've noticed just in the five years that you've been gone? Right. Well, I just, uh, it's happening even in uh, in lots of other places around the country, Baltimore included. So I noticed just such a kind of strange pattern of change of the geographic space, you know, buildings going up, buildings going down, um, places disappearing and new things coming up that don't make sense, (laughs) things like that. Uh, I think the thing that strikes me the most, though, about Sacramento is the homeless population, not just that it exists, but that it's very visible. And I've learned since I've been here kind of the history of how this has evolved. We have a pretty large um, homeless population in Baltimore as well, but it has a different feel. So different cities present themselves differently even with the same problems. Yeah. Baltimore is 60 something percent black so it is a different landscape but unfortunately the majority well not the majority well not the majority but a good chunk of that of that population is uh, working class and poor populations. So um, there's a lot of challenges. Uh, the public school system desperately needs help there for instance. Um, most white folks put their kids in private schools right out of, after fifth grade, if not before. Um, so there's a lot of challenges there, but I've actually enjoyed living there. It's very different from here. Yet when I'm here, I just feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be. And you are. You are. I can just tell by just the, the short conversation that we had, like this really does resonate mm-hmm. with you. Wow. I have a brother-in-law here too. Nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice. So I, I want to read your credentials because I, I, I'm absolutely impressed but I want to dig into what you're doing and what drove you Mm -hmm. so you have a Bachelor of Arts degree with honors in written communications from Mills College a Master of Arts degree in applied communication research like you said from Stanford another Master of Arts degree in sociology from UC Davis and then like you mentioned your doctorate from UC Davis Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. all of that around research sociology um, communication how did you get interested in that area of study? Well, it's funny. <clears throat> My academic um, trajectory was completely unplanned, right? I was at Kennedy High School as a senior and only applied to one college. Once I learned of Mills College as a women's college, it felt the right place for me. And I prayed that I could get in and thank God I did on full scholarship. So I had four of the most amazing years there. And that's where my persona today was born. I was well-trained at that school to be a proud woman. I mean, it is a great place for young women to be. And if they don't know it, they should know it now. I'm telling you, Mm -hmm. if your daughter has a chance to go to Mills College, it's really a wonderful place hidden right there in the city of Oakland. Um, And so there is where I became 
uh, well-schooled on gender and race issues and class issues primarily. I didn't start there. I started off as a theater arts major because I had had this musical uh, background and, and some and some stage playing background. Uh, I didn't have much talent for it, and I was lucky that the school happened to open a new major that next year in written communication. So that's where I got my strong you know training in writing and researching. Um, and when it came time to go to grad school, I didn't know what to do. I was once again, I'm like, I'm not, I don't know where I should take this. And I applied to USC at the school of communication. My family said we need a lawyer in the family. Applied to law school. I'm like, what? <laughs> but I did it anyway. And I also saw where Stanford had this program in applied communication, which felt like a natural continuation of what I had done as an undergrad. Well, I got in all three, and I got money from all three. So then I had to really figure out where I wanted to go. And I ended up going to Stanford. And it was a really great experience that led me more and more into research. I learned how to do research. I learned how to consume research, other people's work. And I became more and more invested in black community issues. So my at Stanford, I did my master's thesis on Jesse Jackson, who then was running for president. And I wanted to talk about what made the country accepting of a black candidate at that moment because we'd had other candidate black candidate tried and but we were all we were all on board with him for you know deeply at that time so I was really interested in that and then um, the reason I went to Davis was because after I had worked at uh, Cal State Hayward then now East Bay among a bunch of sociologists and other social scientists again I got involved in research projects I got honed my skills got better honed. And I didn't think I was getting paid what I should be getting paid. So I thought, it's time to go back to school. And so I applied to both Berkeley and UC Davis and decided to come back home to Davis. And again, had an excellent, excellent education there uh, with really supportive faculty. Um, And in fact, I'm having breakfast with uh, my old advisor in the morning. And so there is just little by little, I became more and more invested in, in the sociology of women and gender and particularly issues of race relations and so forth and so on. And so I ultimately did... Um, my dissertation on the local group, The Birthing Project, which I'm sure a lot of people know about, who was headed by uh, Catherine uh, Hall, was her name when she was best known here. And she still is uh, directing that program. She lives in New Mexico now. And I um, got thrown into a project by my professor who said, we're very, he was working on the black infant mortality issue. Why more black babies die than white babies? Why, why, why was the question. And a lot of money was pouring into the research at that time from the National Institutes of Health, CDC, and other places. Mm -hmm. He was a very quantitative professor, statistician type, but he decided with the little money he had left over, which was actually a lot of money, that he wanted to do something deeper. So he asked me and another graduate student to begin exploring among young pregnant black girls what might be going on in their lives that speaks to the loss of these babies. Now, by infant mortality, meaning they die by the age of one, either in vitro or, or, you know, after they're born. So they stuck us in a teenage clinic and told us to recruit these girls and interview them. And I had to learn on the ground how to do all of that. And I ran into the birthing project by accident as part of that process and became enamored when I said, what are these women doing? I keep hearing about the birthing project. So I made an appointment and I went to meet one of the women who worked for the state of California in some office. She began to talk about what they do and why they do it and what it meant and how important black babies' lives are. And this, and she just caught me. It just caught me. And so I kept following them and following them. When it came time to do a dissertation, I thought, to really get a good job in America, I need to be this kind of sociologist doing this. But my teacher said, oh, no, you have spent four years engulfed in the birthing project. That's what you're going to do. And she fought, I just saw her this weekend in Berkeley at a uh-huh. meeting. She fought me. She said, don't you come back to me until you've written me a proposal about doing using the birthing project as your data. 
I said, yes, ma'am. And that's what I did. And the two only asked two questions of the sister friends who are the women who mentor the, you know, the young women who they're trying to keep healthy. I just basically asked two questions. Why are you doing this? You know, you're committing a lot of your life to taking care of another black, a black girl you don't even know. Right. And the other question was, what was it like once you got into it? And I was most fascinated by their answer to why they do it. Um, they said, because as a black woman, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm. Black women are responsible for making sure that we that our babies are healthy, that they're loved and adored. They took a case early on that I'll never forget. There was a problem where black women who were in prison, when they got ready to have their babies, they were led into the birthing room at the hospital in chains, shackled hands, shackled legs. They fought the state of California to say, stop that practice. When that woman goes in there, she needs to be you know, released and open. That baby needs to come into the world free. And they talked about, we're going to put some of our sister friends in the room and embrace this baby. I remember they gave me a phrase like, the birthing project is about catching a baby and being a witness to its birth. And from that time, I was hooked. You know, I just thought this is where I belong among black women who care enough to devote their energies to preserving black life. And uh, I've, and I've carried on. So my first book after I arrived at... Um, at Hopkins, it's called Embracing Sisterhood, and it focuses on the relationships among black women, particularly as we entered the new century, the 2000. I asked the question, when we talk about black sisterhood, is, it, is there any currency to that, or are we just that's just talking? I wanted to know if there's any meat to it, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, so I ended up interviewing, oh, I think it was 80 women, um, Baltimore, D.C., Virginia, in that area from the age of 18 to 81, and just ask them questions. But I also used a device, a, a survey that had been used at the University of Michigan for years to survey black people. I feminized it so the questions were more about women. Okay. And they were a lot of them had to do with how important is black womanhood to you? Um, how close do you feel to other black women? Those kinds of things. And try to get a sense of whether they were being honest with me about whether they truly were invested. I assumed because I'm a good little sociologist, <laughs> that social class would make a difference as to how the women answered those questions. So I, I, I had a group of lower class women, and I just knew that ultimately I would see a divide and kind of, you know, not at all. It was very little social class difference. They spoke in a singular voice practically about, I would never want to be anything but a black woman. Mm -hmm. um, I make sure that my children are immersed in blackness. I, I was just delighted. So when it came time to write the book, I was excited that I was able to deliver that message. Now, most black women, as you well know, will say, we don't get along. What are you talking about? Black women don't get along. I said, that's because you're buying into the imagery. Right. You're buying into what the media is trying to sell you with these silly shows, particularly silly reality shows where they want to show you fighting and pulling your wigs off and all this mess. Let's, let's step away from that and let's talk the core, the core issues. Or is do we care enough to make sure that we stick together and survive this thing? Now, let me just say this while I have the chance. If black people aren't careful, we'll be gone in 100 years. Hmm. Has anybody thought about this? Our numbers are dwindling. We're becoming smaller, smaller proportion of this population. We're not reproducing our children at the rate. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't care. And I've come now to say I'm not going to spend my energy talking to people who don't care. If you're one of these black folks that say, I don't care. Shoot, they knew better to do this. I don't care about the crack guy over there. I don't Okay, all right. I, I need you to go over there. I'm going to talk to these people over here. What are we going to do? As simple as, what are we going to do in 2020? 
What are we going to do in 2020? Is there a plan? If we don't get Trump off that throne? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So I think that we're at a point, the world is at a point where everybody's got to get a little bit more serious. You can't just go shopping. You can't just, you know, be clapping your hands at church on Sunday morning. Don't get me wrong. I'm a staunch religious Christian. But my point is that there's something deeper we need to do as a community. Black women know it, but they haven't always been able to figure out how to implement it. Black men know it, you know, but we've got to figure out a bigger plan for how we're going to survive to the future. What can we provide our children to anchor them so that we can ensure that the future will be intact? I'm not sure right now it will be. I'm very concerned about it. Why do you think that we don't embrace the thought of continuing our legacy forward? Because the society tells us there's no value in it, Mm. right? So everybody, I'm sure, has been watching TV closely enough lately to see how many interracial couples we see portrayed in commercials. Mm -hmm. That's a message. That's a message that's saying there's really no value in staying black. Right. Mm -hmm. That that really, you know, this is America. We're a melting pot. We should be in a post Obama era. We should be intermarrying. We should be having all these cute little. Have you noticed that every little black girl on a TV commercial has mulatto type hair, curly ringlet hair? Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, there are a lot of little girls that look like that, but there's more girls that don't look like that. Mm -hmm. But there's a type that we're we're being sold Mm -hmm. on a type that we're supposed to be. And it's not our authentic black selves. That is not the African person that they're portraying. You know what I mean? Right. And I so I think we're just buying into those things. We're being too lax. If you care, say so. If you care, do something. You can't yeah. just sit and talk about it at home on your cell phone and with your girlfriends on Facebook or whatever. We have to really figure out a strategy for preserving our absolute lives, financially, educationally, spiritually, and otherwise. And it's not, I'm not saying at all, please don't get me wrong, there are plenty of us that are doing that, but there are a lot of lost souls out there right now. It's been a challenging century for us. So many people are affected by the drug epidemic. So many people are affected by lack of education. So many people in cities like Baltimore. Baltimore is a classic example of what happened when we lost all the factory work, right? It used to be, for instance, that in a place like Baltimore or St. Louis or Philly, um, what today is middle class, uh, what today is working class, we think of the working class people, was felt more like a middle class back then because you could get, a black man could get a really good job working for Bethlehem still, the sugar factories, yeah. you know, shipping, whatever. Have enough money to buy a house, car, vacation in the summer, put their kids through college. You can't do that now. They're you barely no, be, afford the house. Because there are no jobs for people who only have a high school degree, except right. McDonald's, Burger King, and Pizza Hut. And that doesn't even pay a livable wage. Kids getting out of college now are finding, I can't live anywhere without four roommates. Right. I mean, everything. The, we, yes, we're making all this progress. We've got all this technology. Everybody's got cool looking phones. There's nice little cars coming out that you don't even have to drive. I mean, we're always so excited about the new thing. But the new thing takes away jobs often. And people, they're not replacing it with anything. So there's all these people who every day are working three and four jobs to make one salary. You know, and so those are the issues that really concern me. And also the fact that in a place like Baltimore, 
But the gentrification that's going on, mm-hmm. generations, hardcore generations of amazing black folks who've been around since slavery, their, their legacies, right? Who have worked, who made the, made the country what it is through their hard, unpaid labor. Those families are being driven out of their own cities. They can't even afford to live in the city that their families have been in forever. Those kind of issues are what really are bothering me. And, and I don't see uh, the leadership, the national or even state city leadership, doing anything to help. And even in Baltimore, look what we're doing. You've read the headlines. My mayor has screwed up. This is the second black female mayor who is leaving in shame. And it's because Baltimore has an old guard in the government and people think they can get away with stuff because they always have. But of course now, right, people are digging deeper into stuff. I, I want. I just want us to do better. If you if you're going to be a black leader, please be a black leader. Lead for God's sake. Don't just line your pocket. And you see that so often. You know, we fight for these people. We want to. We get them in office, and it seems like as soon as people get in office, a lot of times they're back. They turn their back. They become the regular politician that everybody. Now, there's few exceptions mm-hmm. in that. There are, but for the most part, it's what you see. You know. Yeah, I mean there's, that's because the political machine is what it is. When you decide to go into politics, you have to almost assume that you're going to get corrupted because yeah. it's set up that way. The other problem, though, is that we're not grooming people to go into politics, yeah, right? True. We don't have. We should be able to have a whole line of young people that we have groomed to be the next mayor, to be the next city council person, right? But we end up having this little dearth of whatever to choose from. And I, I just think that, again, we have to put our heads together to figure out how do we do what we do better. we got to do better than we have in the past if everyone is going to make it. You know, I don't want to continue to see so many people in our community lost. And there's open season on black men. It has been for a while now. Now there's open season on Jews, too. I mean, it's just like crazy right now. Just right. shooting folks, shooting right. folks. We have to protect ourselves. We have to figure out what it means to protect ourselves. Um, and then we have to be a little more strident. So it's not always uh, smart, I guess. But oftentimes I intervene on the street. I was in a supermarket not too long ago, and there was a black woman in line, and she had an adorable little one-year-old pulling at her her skirt at the bottom down there. Mm-hmm. She was busy taking her stuff out of her out of her basket, putting it on the conveyor belt. She's on her cell phone talking to her girlfriend at the top of her voice, cussing and carrying on like a fool, and she's cussing at the baby. Mm. I went up and tapped her on her shoulder. I said, "Sister, yell at the baby one more time, and she's coming home with me." Mm. Sometimes you just gotta say it. If we care about each other, yeah. you got to be careful how you do it. People like she might have shot you. So if I die today, I die doing the right thing. At my son's school one time, I, and he was in kindergarten, I think I was walking him in, and there were all these eighth graders all lined up, excited. They had a field trip that day, right? And that was back in the day of the boombox. So they <laughs> they had a boombox, and they were you know they grew. It. I knew, I know how that felt. I remember that from school. But as I walked by, I realized the only lyric in this rap tune that was playing was s-h-i-t that was the, the lyric the entire song oh my goodness and i you know, <laughs> and i'm like oh, and it was loud blasting out over the neighborhoods and stuff and i passed these kids and then i stopped and went back i said baby i'm gonna need the tape give me the tape and he was so shocked he gave it to me but uh-huh. as soon as he did it he was like you can't take my property da, 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 da. And then all these eighth grade kids started trying to come up on me right mm-hmm. and i just kept walking to get you know and they were yelling and cussing me and stuff and I said, baby, no, I said, he, she said, one girl, so I'm going to tell my mama. And I said, here's my number. Tell your mama to call me because I bet your mama would would say you were not supposed to be playing that mm-hmm. in public like that. And they just kept at me. And I finally said, baby, 
Oh, guy, oh, guy said, I'm going to hit you. I'm going to do something. I said, you know, if I die today, protecting my child and all these other little babies out here, I'm good. Mm. I'm good. At some point, we have to say enough. That's not who we are. As black people, that's not our background. We don't let children do what the hell they want to do. We don't give them a cell phone at five years old. What the heck is that? We just make these decisions because we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. That's not who we are. We are people who honor one another. We're people who honor our elders. We are people who make sure everybody gets a piece of bread. You know, make sure that child knows how to read. These are basics that we've, not we ourselves have lost sight of, but the world has forced us into a mold of not paying attention to what really matters. Oh, man, this is such a wonderful conversation. I don't even want to go to a break. Dr. Katrina is breaking it down for us. And it's so, I mean, I'm, I want to dig more into what the work that you do. But we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. We have got more with Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald. This is Full Circle. I'm your host, Ms. Wanda. We'll be right back. Empowering women through conversation. This is what she does. She is Miss Wanda, and this is Full Circle. We're back. Thank you so much for staying with the program. I'm your host, Miss Wanda. This is Full Circle. I am having a wonderful conversation with my guest, Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald. She is the Associate Professor of Sociology. She is also the co-director for the Center for Africana Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. And she has graced us out here on the on the West Coast for a couple of days, doing some speaking and, and engaging with people. She's going to be at Underground Books today. So if you can, it's going to be a wonderful conversation. She's going to be at Underground Books two to four today. Um, So make sure you get out there and absorb some of this. We need this motivation. We need to have these conversations in our community. Um, Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald is Associate Professor of Sociology at John Hopkins University, like I stated. And a lot of her work centers around us, the African-American community. And we've just been having this. If you're just tuning into the program, you make sure that you listen on SoundCloud because the whole conversation that we've had so far has been amazing. I want to just dig a little bit more into what you were talking about earlier about the community. Do you feel like there's a sense of hopelessness in the black community? I have had friends over the years who have at least said to me that they feel like some black folks are just need to be written off. That is not my position. Yeah. But I have had friends do that. Particularly, I remember it was like in the, the yuppie years of the 90s, you know, when black folks were make, you know, were coming up and able to afford a BMW and that kind of thing. They were like, hey, I got mine. Everybody else should get theirs. You know, I understand that general sentiment, but, the, but there are so many. As a sociologist, this is what I do. Understand the forces that cripple people that are not always obvious. There's a lot of insidious issues in our culture that make it difficult for some people, not to mention we have a, we as a nation have always upheld racist views. Now let's talk about race for a minute. Let me be clear that I take the position that there is no such thing as race. We are one human entity. And as the biblical scriptures say, it's like lilies of the field. You're a poppy, I'm a rose, he's a, you know, a tulip, but we're all equal as human beings. Mm -hmm. Race really as a concept didn't emerge until the Atlantic slave trade. The word was used, but it was used very differently than we use it today. And most people will just stop at skin color and call it that. That's not it. 
I do an exercise in my class, in my class called Race, Racism, and Racial Privilege, where I give them about 30 photos online of, of faces of different people and tell them to line those pictures up by race. That's all I say, to see where do they, where do they go. Well, they, they scratch their heads for a long time, and then they start putting the real dark-skinned people on one end, the real white, white people on the other end. In the middle, it's a mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because they see this Indian guy that's darker than the black dude. And right. they see this Asian girl that's darker than, you know, the black girl. And I said, I said, because the skin color means nothing. When people talk about race, they're talking about a hierarchical system of belief. It's a belief. It's an ideology. Where you believe that certain people belong at the top of the food chain mm-hmm. and other people belong at the bottom of the food chain. And the Atlantic slave trade, I believe, was a mixture of just plain old bigotry and also economic motive. And through that economic motive to enslave and and build the crops they wanted to build in the new land, they they had to justify why they were going over there and getting us from Africa. And they'd say, well, they're animals. They don't have a a religion. They don't have this. We're going to use them for our economy and we're going to make them better people. You know, I mean, this is like that. I'm talking about it right. very simplistically, yeah. but that's the idea. And then, so it's not even just white and black. It's a ranking. The Hispanics fit somewhere in there, mm-hmm. and different Hispanics fit in there differently. Right. Different Asians fit in, you know. So, so there's a whole ideology. So when when you call someone a racist, what you're saying is they truly believe that white folks are on top and they deserve to be on top. They have the mental capacity to be on the top. They have the know-how of everything to be on top. And the blacks on the bottom lack it. That's what that system means. Don't throw around the word race and racism unless you know what you're talking about. Because we, I think we've gotten to where we just talk it so much. Nobody really knows what we're talking about. We're talking about a system that's been in place for a very long time. And it's a system that's determined to keep you where you are, not allowing you to elevate. Um, in America, we have the belief that, oh, we're not like some other places that lock you in, say, like a caste system where you can't, you, you, you're born into a particular rank in society. You can never get out. We are America where everybody has an opportunity to be whatever they want to be. And people, you know, teachers tell you that from elementary school, you can be whatever you want. You can live wherever you want. It's not true. There are people who actively keep you away from things that you want. There are people who don't want you educated. They don't want you in your neighbor in their neighborhood. When I moved to Baltimore, the summer well after I knew I had the job, my husband and I went to Baltimore to look for a place. We you only had like three or four days, you know, because uh-huh. they flew us out, gave me a real estate agent, and said, you know, find what you want. So we said we're just going to rent it first. And, and I said I want to live near campus. I don't know Baltimore well. I need to live close in. So I told the guy that the first house he took us to was way over someplace else in a black middle-class neighborhood out in a county i'm like why are we here and then finally he took me to this other place still not where i asked and i was tired so i'm like let me go look at this house i said it's fine tell him we'll rent it that night my husband and i are in the hotel he calls it you know they took it off the market i'm sorry we'll have to try again tomorrow what do you mean they took it off the market do they want to rent it or not went out the next day same thing third day same thing i said to my husband something's wrong then it dawned on me. He's telling these white folks, I have a Hopkins professor that wants to rent your house, and then I show up. Now, Baltimore has a long history of housing discrimination. I never thought that I'd experience it in, in 1994. We ended up getting a place, but it wasn't through the real estate process. Right. We did it almost on our own. Um, so 
even today, there are people who don't want you to have something and they actively keep it from you. Okay, that's what we mean by a racist system. It's not just your your personality. Right. It's not him because he don't like black people. That's not racism. Racism is when he espouses or at least holds his head or her head that black people are of a lower human um, level. They're not even at our level. That's what racism is about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in my class on race, racism, and racial privilege, we get to the nitty gritty about that, and then we also talk about whiteness. That is just assumed. Right. It's just assumed that white is white and white, white, white. Right. But now I have a friend in Baltimore who's just started an organization of women, white women, to call them on their own whiteness, on their privileges. Hmm. They're learning how to see their own privilege. The privilege is not something you earn. A privilege is something you're born into by merely being white. You're afforded things that this Hispanic kid over here is not. And you don't realize it because it comes. To, it just comes right. to you. It just is. <laughs> it just right? comes to you. Mm-hmm. So for about twenty years now, you can actually major in whiteness studies in a couple of universities. Yeah, because they're saying we've been talking about black studies, African American studies, Chicana studies, all these other. We ain't talked about whiteness. You can't have these other concerns, right? So black studies was born out of what? Born out of exclusion. Blacks right. couldn't get into stuff. There was nobody talking about our issues in the academy and so forth, right? Um, so we had an impetus for that. Today, we're like, let's flip it. There's an impetus for you understanding who you are as a white person, what you possess just because you were born. So we just saw what happened with the, the college entrance scandal. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's privilege that even allows that kind of cash to be submitted for your child to get and get away with it for years. You yeah. know this has been going oh, on yeah. for a long time. And you yeah. know it's probably. They're just the fall guys. For oh, it. yeah. You mm-hmm. know, almost every university's had this. You know, so I'm just saying people, you know, people say, I earned. No, you didn't earn it. The girl, now these kids are saying, no, I didn't earn getting into USC. My mama bought it. That is a more, that's a blatant form of privilege. There are other much more subtle, like going in a restaurant, who gets seated first and who gets a better seat. Right? Those right. are subtle ways that privilege is played. Or, um, the one thing I hate the most is when I go in a store and I get followed, right? Nobody's following the white lady over there. She's still in your blind, (laughs) (laughs) right? Uh, So anyway, so I think that the conversations, I think the conversations have improved dramatically in our country about race over the years. Um, We have a lot more to do. And then we don't want it to become trendy either. You know, we have, there's, there's always that problem. All of a sudden things are just trendy to talk about and workshops on this and workshops, but we're still not dealing with the day-to-day fact, the day-to-day fact that this little black boy is not being educated. The teacher's not even paying attention to him in class. You know what I mean? Those kind of things. People are living in squalor. In a nation that's wealthy, no one should be living in squalor. No one should go hungry, that kind of stuff. That's where we need to spend our, our, our earnest time. If you're just joining us, this is Full Circle. I'm your host, Ms. Wanda, having a wonderful conversation with my guest, Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald, Associate Professor of Sociology at John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. You just got to go back and listen if you're just catching the show because it's amazing. Dr. McDonald, so in your classes, do you find that people that are not black that are in your classes, there's a, an uncomfortability um, around the conversation that you have? Not anymore. Oh, okay. It used to be. Okay. So the first course I ever taught was called The Black Female at UC Davis. Um, and 
I don't think I had any white people in the class. <laughs> I think they were all black kids, right? Uh-huh. And then I start teaching the black family. Again, all black kids. Over the years, it's become a much more multicultural crowd in class. Okay. I also teach a class on gender. Um, uh, I teach an African American studies course, intro to African American studies, and a few others. And over the over the last ten years, it's become more and more multicultural. And students will come up to me and say, "I want you to know, I'm not just taking your class to get some units. Mm-hmm. I want to understand this." Now, mind you, I was teaching the gender course in the middle of the mess on Me Too mess. Right in the middle of that mess, I was teaching the course, and the students really wanted to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, even outside the class, I'll tell you about a, uh, a man from my church. A, 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 I think he's 70 at least. White male who I've known for years, mm-hmm. and he's a very different. And at the height of the Weinstein crisis about his sexual harassment stuff, he came up to me and he said, you know, I'm just struggling trying to understand why are these women coming out telling all these stories so many years later? I mean, when I grew up in uh, New Jersey, you know, I worked in a factory and there were women and we used to hit them on the fanny and play with them and and it was okay. It wasn't a big deal. Um, And I just don't understand what's happening right now. And I believe in being respectful of people generally, particularly my elders, so I didn't want to jump on him. I just looked him in his face and said, this is what revolution looks like. We've been here before. Mm -hmm. We've only had change in this country when things get ugly. Right. 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 So in my class, you know, in my class, I had to help students that way. I have to use I have to come I had to come down with that. Uh, I have to, I had to walk them through that gender stuff. They didn't know what the heck. I had to show them the Anita Hill hearings. Mm. These are children. Mm. You know, my students they didn't now. Know anything right. about that. And you know, you forget when you teach for 25 years, you forget when you started. <laughs> <laughs> they knew stuff was happening right then. These kids today don't even know what you're talking about. Right. So they kept hearing them re- make reference to this Anita Hill stuff and you know there's a there's an actual documentary on it, but there's mm. also the HBO special, right? yeah. the HBO docu- docudrama. They opted for the docudrama. Fine, mm-hmm. we'll play it. They were they were glued to that. They were glued. You know, you have to expose these kids when they, when you expose them to stuff. I remember when I taught my race class years ago. At the very end of the class, this white boy came up to me and said, "Dr. McDonald, I think my uncles are racist." Mm. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, I mean, he just started thinking. I'm thinking about you know. He's As like, you're bringing this to mm-hmm. his consciousness. He's That's like, why my grandfather. I think he's a racist, you know, mm. because he realized the kind of language and things that were talked about in his household. So over the years, there's been a lot of progress. In another way as well, I, I taught social statistics there for many years. First time I taught it, I'm standing at the front of class waiting for my students to be seated, shuffling my papers or whatever, waiting. And this young white woman comes up to me and she says, um, could you tell me, like, when the professor's going to be here? Oh. I said, sweetheart, I'm the professor. I'm standing right in front of you. But for 10 years, I was the only black female professor at Johns Hopkins University for 10 years on that campus. Not at the hospital, on the, you know, but on the main campus for 10 years. We've made strides now. But even then, there's what, six of us out of 400? That's crazy. And this is in Baltimore. <laughs> Where so, the population is 60% right. black. So, pe- so people will often say to me in Baltimore, you're lying. You know you ain't the only. I'm like, no, really, I am the only. They don't believe it. They can't believe it. Um, so so over the years, I've seen a lot of progress in our ability to talk to one another, mm-hmm. students to take the material seriously, for instance, um, and being in a classroom that's multicultural where we're, we're able to exchange. They're not really shy. They're not shy about it. 
they just want to get it right. The kids that take my classes, they come really wanting to get it, you know, get it, not leave there still in a fog. That's refreshing. And you can't and you can't learn everything in one class, right. but you can at least give them the tools. We're going to take another quick break. Dr. McDonald, will you stay around for another hour? I'd be happy to. Oh, man, I'm loving this conversation. If you're just joining us, this is Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda, having a wonderful conversation with my guest, Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald. She is Associate Professor of Sociology at John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and she is right here talking to us. So keep it right here. We'll be right back with more Full Circle. If you have something to add to the conversation, drop us a line at fullcircle975 at gmail.com. We are back. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda, having a wonderful conversation with my guest, Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald, Associate Professor of Sociology and Co-Director for the Center for Africana Studies at John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. She will be at Underground Books today, two o'clock. You do not want to miss the conversation discussing the book that she co-authored, Marriage in Black, The Pursuit of Married Life Among American-Born and Immigrant Blacks. That conversation in itself. Tell me a little bit, and I know you're doing a book signing and discussion Mm -hmm. later on today, but tell us a little bit about marriage in black. Sure. Well, let me clarify that I my specialty in sociology is the family. So um, most of my work, uh, for instance, around the whole infant mortality issues and so forth, I've done most of my work in the realm of family, um, but I also do a lot in gender. Um, This book was born out of a frustration a frustration as a social scientist where for many, many years, the only thing you hear about black relationships is their dysfunction, specifically divorce and non-marriage. And, you know, after hearing hearing it over and over again, seeing it over again, even in public policy, you know, I just thought it was time to put marriage back on the squarely on the table, for, you know, at least for a minute, because mm-hmm. we know there's plenty of married black folks uh, who are happily married, doing well and lasting in their relationships. So that was the primary motivation. I was also motivated by um, the, the the second wave feminist movement in the, in the 60s and 70s that put a lot of emphasis on egalitarian marriage. They felt that if marriages could work their way into being more equal between husbands and wives, then that would spill over into society and our whole society would be transformed in that way. But we never really figured out if we got where we thought we wanted to get with that. And, you know, I I couldn't find any evidence of a continued conversation so much on that. And I asked a lot of my colleagues, you know, I don't know. I don't know where we ended up with that. So I at least wanted to explore that because I had heard so many times and read a lot of times about African-Americans being more egalitarian than other groups in their marriage. On what basis? Well, a lot of people say it had to do with slavery. It had to do that, had to do with the fact that black men and black women in slavery were equals because the slave master made them equals. They worked equally hard. They got just as many whippings and all that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. and, the, and the man couldn't take any kind of, quote, headship position because the head of the black family in slavery was the, the master. slave master. Mm-hmm. So, they, so a lot of people say starting from that would suggest that, you know, they would have come out of slavery and into Reconstruction Beyond still with this kind of uh, feel for the egalitarian relationship. Other people say, no, really, as we move forward, it had more to do uh, with socioeconomics, that um, it was hard for black men to be head of the, of the family because they didn't necessarily make, weren't the sole wage earner, right? The mm-hmm. idea of being head traditionally is that you're the one that's supplying the family with their goods and stuff, right? right. Um, and so they argue that black men have never really had a foothold in that 
economically, and that may explain why then you see more of an egalitarian setup among us and others. And there's other kinds of theories tossed about, and it can't be one. It's probably an amalgam of a lot of different things. But I at least wanted to take time to look at that currently, like to what degree are African-American marriages egalitarian, and how does that compare? The most important thing that I do in this book is I try to unpack blackness. We talk about the black population as if we're all one. And granted, we often do differentiate African-Americans by social class or levels of education, things like that, but there's also ethnic differences. So I wanted to uh, see whether marriage, contemporary marriage, so I look at um, uh, marriages of people who were in their 30s. I started this about seven years ago. Um, in their 30s, and they had to have been married at least five years to be in my study. Um, I wanted to see if there was any difference in the way that these couples talked about marriage, uh, given their backgrounds. So they are what we call what we're calling in the book American-born blacks. I used to just call those plain old black people. And what I mean by that are people who know for sure have good reason to believe that they they came from the slave. Um, experience in the U.S. Okay. Their ancestors were slaves in the U.S. Um, we know that there are slaves in the Caribbean and other places too, but, but, I, but the American story is one particular story. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by American-born blacks. I also included in my sample Caribbean immigrants and African immigrants. Again, they are in their 30s, so they would have had to have migrated uh, to the U.S., you know, in that 30 years. But a lot of them had just come over maybe in the last five years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to ask the same questions, but see how they differed in their responses. Mm -hmm. And so I, so we did talk about egalitarianism and it did turn out that the American born blacks spoke to it more. They felt that, yes, that's the right way a marriage should be. What I thought was really funny. and, And let me just clarify the facts show that women are beginning to make more money than their husbands, black women in particular, um, and guys would say, yeah, my wife makes more than me. It's cool, though. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they would say, I don't mind at all. You know, it's all ours, you know. Uh, where the white man's like, oh, that's never going to happen. And that wasn't the conversation with black men. I would say probably, what, do you think 20, 30 years ago? No, 40? I think it would. No, I think in the past, because black men are in America. America says, right, yeah. that the man is head of his household. The man should this, the man should that. And, 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 and it didn't just start. It was as far back as Reconstruction. In Reconstruction, there was the Freedmen's Bureau. The Freedmen's Bureau was a government agency that's chore was to um, help ex-slaves become integrated into the, the, the paid economy, right? And they wanted them to look more white in their makeup <laughs> in general. So they're like... Well, in slavery, we didn't let them get married, but we know that we value marriage as white people. So we got to make the black folks act like the way. So let's go marry them. So they literally went door to door, finding out a lot of people were shacked up because they'd mm-hmm. been shacked up all through in slavery. They would go to their house and say, are you guys want to get married? OK, we'll marry you right here on the porch and give them a marriage certificate. Other people sought it out. A lot of blacks sought it out. They wanted to be married. They had wanted all through slavery to be officially married, but they couldn't be. And so when they made it possible, there was a floodgate of blacks who, you know, who did it. But in some cases, people said, we don't really need to be married. And they kind of forced them into it. And at that point, too, was when sharecropping as an economic structure came about. And there... A woman couldn't contract for sharecropping. She, could, she couldn't be an independent sharecropper. She could only get into it through her husband or her brother or her father. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to redesign the black family in the shape of the white families. And so, of course, black men being forced into that began also to talk the language of being head. And I make these decisions and you're subordinate to me, woman. Right? Right. Um, so 
Yeah, today I think there's been a shift, more comfort, and black men tend to be much more comfortable in sharing in the in the relationships. Mm-hmm. The Caribbean men weren't quite as comfortable. I can I I see that. Yeah. <laughs> right, not yeah. quite. They, they were frustrated in a way. So they come to the U.S. having had dominance as a man in, in the Caribbean. And they would come to the United States and realize, I can't because my wife, I need, she got to work. I can't just be the man. She right. got, we need two incomes. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to help cook. I'm going to have to change some diapers because we're trying to make this work kind of thing. And so sometimes there was a little frustration in their voices. The Africans um, were a little mixed bag. Uh, let me back up on the Caribbeans again, though. You know how we're often laying claim to the fact that Caribbean men are very infidel? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that came up a lot in, in my conversations with the Caribbean couples, a lot of the women being very concerned at the early part of the relationship, whether or not they were going to have to deal with that, yeah. you know. And what I think we need to keep in mind, and I read something on this that's in the book that's so powerful, that, you know, we made the Caribbean for the world the sex pot place it is right that's true we made it a commercial space right. where right. people go to do things they wouldn't do at home right. <laughs> <laughs> so why would we be surprised that caribbean yeah. men are infidel when we are selling that and people are pouring money into that economy mm-hmm. for that stuff right mm-hmm. so i'm not sure it's fair to put on caribbean men's heads this label of infidel like it's just innately who they are. I don't believe it. I think we've created that monster of sorts. Um, nonetheless, even today, some of these women are concerned that you know they have to battle that more than other women have to battle. In the African case, it's polygamy, right? It tickled me that so many of my African women are like, you know, I really love my Africa. I love my culture. My, you know, I love so much. We came here for opportunity, whatever, whatever. Um, but I don't miss polygamy. <laughs> They're like, one thing I love is I'm a free woman in the United States. You know, women have rights and I have the right not to put up, you know, or or that even polygamy wouldn't be tolerated except maybe in Utah. Or whatever, right, right, right. I mean, they were just like, you know, I'm just glad I don't have to deal with that factor. Yeah. You know, was the sentiment of the African women, did it depend on what region of it Africa? Does. They, OK, it does. So one of the things we uh, so let me clarify that we use the word ethnicity to differentiate between the American-born black, okay. the Caribbean, the African, and the whites. I interview whites, too. Uh, it's not a perfect label for that, but we couldn't find another word to kind of, how do you how do you separate black folks who are from these different places? It's right. not national. I mean, so, so part of the problem with using ethnicity is that I have people in my study who are from different countries in Africa. Well, ethnicity is so fluid and so differentiated, and, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. D- to say ethnicity doesn't really get doesn't, yeah. so so. But what I mean by ethnicity are people who are from a particular place. Okay. So a person who's ethnically from Uganda or ethnically from uh, Ghana, whatever. Um, and I do have several countries represented in there. And what immediately struck me is that their responses to a lot of my questions about their marriages um, had a religious tone to it, and it reflected whatever religion proselytized their country. Mm. So if the Catholics. <laughs> You know, colonized and, and fed their wares to one country, then they tended to talk with almost a Catholic tone. If the Seven Day Adventists mm-hmm. are prominent in a particular country, then they would talk kind of in that language. I, I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. So, religion was a, as a factor in marriage, in dictating how you do marriage, and that's a, it, it was a bit more prominent among the Africans. Um, and so, the, so I talk about. Um, egalitarianism in one part. I talk about parenting in the book, the different approaches they have to parenting. Okay. Uh, one of the things uh, I, I thought was interesting is I interviewed a Sudanese couple 
from Africa. And they were both pretty well-to-do. I think the husband was a dentist and the wife was a doctor. And she was going back for another degree at the time. And they had an adorable little four-year-old son. And they were were, um, Muslim. So I, of course, expected them to put a lot of emphasis on the Quran as a dictate to how, you know. And they sort of did. I mean, they certainly referenced you know, certain things. For instance, he, the, the husband mentioned that in the Quran, it says polygamy is okay, but if you can't support all the women, you can't, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Uh-huh. Also that the woman's money means nothing. If the woman works and makes money, you, he doesn't get to count that as part of the family pot, mm-hmm. for instance. So he would offer that kind of stuff to me. But then he said, but then coming to the U.S., we had to kind of, ch- you know, do something things. different. Because mm-hmm. in Africa, we had a housekeeper, a cook, a house cleaner, all this for like pennies. Here you can't do that. So that meant all of a sudden, husband had to do some mopping and had to do this and the other. So there was this adaptation talk among the Africans. We came here and figured out as much as we love our motherland and everything it stands for, our culture so rich and so forth, we couldn't exactly replicate that here because economically it's a whole different ball game. Yeah. And so that meant that even the notion of headship just wasn't as important. They just didn't espouse that. Where the white men would frequently, you know, raise the issue of, well, this is how we do things. And they do things very linearly. You date, you know, you get engaged, you have a wedding, you get married, you have kids, the the wife stays home, the husband works, that kind of, they were very linear in their thinking about how you do family. Where the black couples were much more um, about adaptation. We do what we need to do to make this work. I think the thing that I love the most about what I discovered, particularly again about my native born, my, my American born blacks, is some of them met really young. Really? Like middle school. <laughs> I mean, they, they, yeah, they met, they met middle school, high school, and, they, and this notion of kismet was pretty common among them hmm. about, you know, we just knew when we saw each other that we was to be together and they did a lot of them went on to get married um and they 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 talk there's a lot of fun passages where they tell me specifically how they met and the weird things that happened and and so forth but they uh, there's also this language that um american-born black men use that's very romantic when they talk about their women that i didn't see in the other three groups oh wow you know that's my that's my girl that's my lady that's my queen Mm -hmm. you know they would talk that all and i thought that's interesting i i guess i knew that but Putting it against these other groups, it really stood out. And that has something to do, I'm sure, with America being, you know, putting over emphasis on romantic stuff generally. But I found them really kind of really appreciating having that mate, right? And a lot of it referred back to, I mean, they referred to the fact that their woman hung with them when they was messing up. Mm. Mm. (laughs) When I went to jail... She came and saw me every week, and she took she held she held the house down and that kind of thing. And then yeah. when I got out, I felt I needed to appreciate her sticking with my butt mm. while I did what I did. That was interesting to me. Did not find that. You in didn't the find other, that in the other not. cultures. Yeah, did not. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Did you get a sense of well, why that is? Again, we have an American reality. In America, we have a particular set of problems that impact the black man. And so the likelihood that any black man is going to spend some time in the custody of our criminal justice system is scary but true, 
right? Mm-hmm. That the drug epidemic has affected so many and the, and the gang culture and all that. So unfortunately, a lot of our black men do largely because we don't educate them well and there's no jobs yeah. that they get involved in things. And, and, and women are devoted to them and want to stick with them through their mess. Sometimes they, we give up. Sometimes we get tired. Okay, I get it. Sometimes we don't even bother because we're like, I don't want to have to go through that. But a lot of women take the chance. And what I found was that, like I said, the men appreciated it. They expressed their appreciation that my little dirty self, that woman hung with me. And mm-hmm. here we are married with five beautiful children mm-hmm. now. So I really love that that kind of story. So the one piece I love to talk about in the book is the fact that there's a gentleman by the last name, a professor by the last name of Banks, B-A-N-K-S, at Stanford. He's a law professor. He wrote a book a few years back called Is Marriage for White People? And he calls it that because he stumbled upon a Washington Post article, I think it's 2006, where a reporter had spent time in a middle school talking to black children in a middle school about family issues. And at one point she turns to the issue of marriage and and one black boy and then another little black boy, these are sixth graders, said, we don't want to talk about marriage, you know. Marriage is for white people. Oh. Okay. Whoa, Right. And so this professor at Stanford picked up on that line and used it for the title of his book. And he just kind of wanted to, he too, wanted to kind of look at contemporary black marriage. Where are we? Let me say quickly, too, that my book is on heterosexual marriage only because the Same-Sex Marriage Act had not passed yet. If the Same-Sex Marriage Act had passed, we would have definitely had um, same-sex couples in our sample because we wanted to talk about legal marriage. Um, so that's so I just want to be clear about that. Um, so he writes this book, Is Marriage for White People? And he actually does an excellent job in the first like three chapters of giving all this wonderful historical background, similar to what I do to kind of lead us into the present. Does that fine. But then his thesis (laughs) is that black women need to move to a new thing. And that new thing is to marry Asian, Hispanic, Mm. and white men because black men just can't pull this off. And this is a black man that a black man that wrote this book. Yes, ma'am. Now, this smack. Okay, so it's on. So now the problem of black marriage, if you're going to couch it as that, is on the woman's back. So it's women that got to solve the problem of black marriage, wherever that problem is. Not the economy. <laughs> you know, not the society that's got this stuff all upside down. Right. It's smacked of 1965 when Daniel Patrick Moynihan wrote a report called The Negro problem and you know trying to take a national action to resolve the problem of the black family back then and it was then on the backs of black women it was all about the black women ain't doing stuff right i'm like whoa we're 2006 now talking the same thing and i'm like what i felt i felt disgusted by the fact that he did not acknowledge the cultural mandate of black women and black men being together i mean that we have desire to be with our own it isn't just about marrying a man because he's got this particular... I'm not saying we shouldn't think about those things. Mm-hmm. One of our biggest problems, we don't talk about marriage with our children, right? Young kids need to understand, if you think you want to get married one day, let's talk about how you're going to get there. People just fall into these relationships, and oftentimes they don't last because they haven't thought it through. They, they aren't prepared. Right. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be thinking about what makes for good marriage and help people make good choices, but there's some of us black women who are going to always want a black man. 
And don't you dare tell me not to. Don't you dare tell me something else. I'm an African woman with an African sensibility. And I'm always going to, you know what I'm saying? So that just bothered me that he took that tap. So in my book, what I do is present that same case of the Washington Post article to my couples. Right. And say, what do do you think? What do you think prompted those little boys Mm -hmm. to say marriage is for white people? And their answers are profound. Hold that thought. Yes. We're going to come back from a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more with Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald. This is Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda. We'll be right back. And we're back with Miss Wanda, life coach, motivational speaker, and friend of sisters everywhere. This is Full Circle. All right, we're back. Thank you so much for staying with the program. I'm your host, Miss Wanda. This is Full Circle. I'm having a wonderful conversation with my guest, Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald from John Hopkins University in Baltimore. She is Associate Professor of Sociology, as well as the co-director for the Center for Africana Studies. Dr. McDonald, it has been a wonderful time having you on the program. Thank you. It's been great. I want to jump right back into the conversation we were having before the break about marriage and the ideals uh, from this Washington Post article that these two little black boys, sixth grade, were saying marriage is for white people. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you were talking about the uh, professor from Stanford Mm -hmm. that had this notion that black women need to move on. I want to go all the way back to what you were talking about earlier with the media because mm-hmm. piggybacking on that we're getting fed those things of we see the it started with the Cheerios commercial remember that yes. was so controversial yes. but now more and more mm-hmm. you're starting to see little inklings of these interracial mm-hmm. couples mm-hmm. in media right. in commercials and things like that and in fact that was one of the primary issues that the couples brought up to me as why they thought these boys made such a comment Uh, marriages for white people because the media works up the water about what makes for good marriage and it rarely is a black couple you know um and it's funny though one of my couples (laughs) they say hold up um, let me think they start trying to think where do I see black couples on TV? Let me think. And they go, they went back right. and forth with each other going, this show? No, not that show. Is it that show? You know, and of course, mm-hmm. some of the ones you, you know, they brought up like blackish. And right. Stuff like that. right. But they were so but cute. those are few and far between. Right. But in general, the couples put a lot of blame on media portrayals where, you know, given as much, you know, stuff that we consume in the media, you know, young people would be impacted by the lack of a visibility of black couples in these various places. They did, they definitely talked about that. Um, they also talked a lot about black women um, being too inv- individualistic, right? They say black women have, you know, they all, they just want what they want. They want to get up that corporate ladder and they want to this and, and make more money and, and they're not really cooperating with black men to create a good marriage. They, mm-hmm. So there's that blame of the black woman yet again that mm-hmm. we often see. And religion came up too, particularly on the part of the Africans and the Caribbeans. They felt that they came from a richer cultural milieu, including the religious milieu, to structure marriage where Americans, they felt, were too willy-nilly. That the cultural, like yeah. like what is African-American culture anymore? Mm-hmm. Like we can't even talk about the contours of it. We can talk about, yeah, we got jazz music, we got gospel, we got this. But we don't, in terms of values, it's, mm-hmm. I don't think that it's as clear to people who we claim to be 
when we say we're African-American, where they say, I'm, as an African, specifically as a Ghanaian or as a this, this is what we believe and this is what we do. Mm-hmm. And we do it over and over and over again, generation by generation. Yeah. And the Caribbeans were close behind them on that. Uh, whites, like I said, they just think that they have things organized correctly, that they, you know, they they have come from a history where we know how to do marriage and we do it this way. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there, you know, there was a plenty, plenty of the whites who, you know, talked about the struggles that they have. The other thing that I found fascinating was that a large portion of my sample of 61 couples got married in the courthouse. Really? Yeah. Even with the rich tradition from the Caribbean yeah. and the African. Yeah. Wow. I thought that was so interesting. Now, true, a number of the Africans, sometimes the Africans often got married both places. Like okay. they go home and have a, have their cultural wedding and then okay. they have. But a lot of people got married in the courthouse and I thought this must be, I must be tapping into low income stuff where they just couldn't afford a wedding. They, uh-huh. did, they wanted to go a cheaper route, but it turned out not really having anything to do with money. It really boiled down, we want to be married, we might as well do it now. Wow. I was like, wow. Um, and they did. Some of them, you know, went to the courthouse and then may have, may have had a reception later at mom's house mm-hmm. or they may have had a wedding later even. But they, they, they were really, when they decide they want to be married, they, they did it. do it. And I, I, didn't, I didn't anticipate that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so what other things have you found in your research about black love and black <laughs> marriage? Did you study or look at, I know you were looking at your sample was married couples. Right. Did you also do an offshoot of divorce and how that... I didn't. Okay. No. In this particular study, like I said, our, we were really trying to make a point to our discipline, okay. to sociology, that you can't avoid talking about marriage. Everything we talk about in sociology is divorce and non-marriage of blacks, okay. constantly looking at the statistics and showing okay. the constant decline to the point where it's almost like married folks aren't in any of the data. Like mm-hmm. there's no, you know, so I, I just want, you. I wanted to just spend time looking at what is actually going on gotcha. inside the doors of these marriages. Can I read you a passage? Absolutely. So there's one part of the book where I just give you all the, all these couples. I just tell you about them, where they lived, how they met, all this kind of stuff. Here I, is a kind of a, a taps into a lot of this egalitarian speak. Okay. Okay. Um, there's Marvin and Jennifer Johnson, an American-born black couple. They met at a local college where they both studied um, social work and justice. They now have three healthy daughters, and Jennifer's pregnant again with a boy. They have just bought a new house in the city where they can raise a growing family. Although they fought frequently before they married, Jennifer said, it just feels like God has moved in our marriage. Now they rarely argue. Jennifer believes female submission is essential to a successful marriage and that women prioritizing work or school over families' responsibilities are selfish. So here we even have a black woman tapping into that. She said that the black woman in particular needs to give up the role of the power woman. Jennifer runs a small business from her home and occasionally takes a substitute teaching shift, but Marvin is the primary breadwinner working two jobs. That's one example. Then there's Anthony and Ava Tompkins. And when they first met, God told her that Anthony was to be her husband. Common theme. Mm-hmm. Very common theme. Okay. Among the, uh, particularly among the American, the American. born. Mm-hmm. Now married for about eight years and raising two daughters in a spacious house in the suburbs, the Tompkins said that marriage had, has gotten better every year since the wedding. And it turns out that Ava, and so she was born in Bermuda. So there, I have a number of couples where there's an African-American and an African or an African-American and Caribbean. And we really struggled with that. But realized after we looked through all the interview material that if there was that type of marriage, the couple took on 
the culture of the person from the other place. Mm. So even though you were African-American, they lived like Caribbeans or they lived like Africans. Oh, right. That's interesting. It, yeah, it was. I, I thought that was interesting. So in this case, she was from Bermuda and she says, I remain uh, devoted to family first. Anthony. Um, oh, the, oh, I'm sorry. This couple is this particular couple are both from the Caribbean. Okay. So Anthony, who has Caribbean parents, was born and raised in the U.S., but closely in by his parents. And he agreed that he was self-centered in the early years, but he has come to embrace Ava's family values, especially now that they are parents. He believes that they play similar roles in marriage, and that's how it should be. Then there's Danny and Elena Chabet, who met um, at their church in Kenya when Elena was 17 years old, five years before their marriage, under pressure from their families. Mm. See, this is different. Um, the two married about six months after their first child was born, and soon after Elena finished college, two more children followed. Elena explained that children complete their marital picture and help with the gloomy days. They moved to the U.S. where Danny had family and where he felt he could pursue his dreams. And Elena has her master's and has steady income, but Danny's work schedule and income fluctuate. So they talked about some of the challenges they had with this two-income family thing. But they put later on, they talk, they talk again, constantly referring back to Kenya as the place that mm-hmm. grounded them. Right, Kenya is where we got our grounding. Then there's Andrew and Michelle Weller, a white couple. Um, and they laugh at couples with traditional values and see the average marriage as boring and routine. <laughs> Michelle works the night shift three days a week as a nurse for an inner city hospital. Andrew does bookkeeping full time and is taking classes to advance his career. Michelle became pregnant shortly after they met. That's also a common theme. People get pregnant first more often than not uh-huh. than married. She attended college when they married and their older daughter was born shortly after that. Their second daughter was born after that. They earn similar incomes now, even though Michelle does not work full time and they are able to pursue a tiny well-kept house up outside the city. So again, in this case, this family believes in egalitarianism, but let me clarify, and I'll talk about this at, at my talk, is that they're really kind of three ways of defining this kind of gender relationship in marriage. There's the traditional, Mm -hmm. where the man's the head, the woman's this, she probably shouldn't work, he works, and she does the children, he does the front yard. Then there's transitional, where where people who are trying to move into something more egalitarian but kind of live in half, half and half. Mm-hmm. Or another way of thinking of that is they believe in egalitarianism, but they don't necessarily practice it. And then there's the true egalitarians who really believe in it and do everything they can to practice it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we assess, you know, uh, in general within sociology, we assess couples on where they might be mm-hmm. in that spectrum. So so in the book, I, I because this is a qualitative research study, this is not a statistical study. This is where I literally went into their homes. I interviewed the couples together and then I interviewed husbands and wives separately. And I often spent time in their homes and went grocery shopping with them and just to see how the family interacted. And then from that, you have to transcribe literally word for word these interviews. And then you have to spend hours upon hours mm-hmm. trying to decide what do I have across all these conversations? What themes emerge? Right. So it's a very it's a very tedious process, but it's so it's so wonderful to be able to 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 look at something up close rather than on the surface. So by being able to have people give me their words. Right. Not me trying to put words in their mouth. They give me their words. And I love using their words to report what I find. 
And how long did you do the research before this book? Was the released? whole process was about seven years. Part of the problem is that the African and Caribbean immigrants, I think, were nervous that we were government people and mm. were concerned about some immigration issues. Yeah. Um, so we stumble. So I got, you know, we definitely got some through our traditional channels, like going to uh, going to immigration services offices. We even went to like cultural festivals and okay. recruited on the ground. But we weren't getting as many as we had hoped. So we put an ad on Craigslist. Mm. And all of a sudden, people were contacting us. <laughs> right? That was so strange. We just did that on a fluke. Yeah. Um, but it's but I literally, you know, go to their homes, sit in their homes, sit there, talk, and and, and it's wonderful. One opportunity, one one situation I got into more than once, one time particularly. I sat down and you know did my basic introduction, and they said, "You're married, right?" I said, "Yes, I'm married. We need to talk to you. We got some issues." I'm like, "Hold up." <laughs> I'm not a marriage counselor, <laughs> I'm, you know, <laughs> and I have to be, I mean, we have to be very clear about that ethically. We uh-huh. can't ever let the our, the people that we interview in our research think we're something we're not. Right. So I had to keep saying, no, dear, 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 I don't have any credentials to be a counselor. And they, they would not let it go. So finally I said, okay, let me turn my recorder off and let's just talk, you know, and they poured out. Pe- people think folks won't tell you their stories. Yes, they will. Oh, yeah. Yes, they Absolutely. will. People are always saying, it's so hard. You know, I can't imagine doing an interview and getting people to tell me. You just oh, got to ask the right question. I have had people tell me things, girl. I would rather they had not. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been, you know, in my previous work here in Sacramento, mm-hmm. I, when I was studying um, teenage pregnancy issues, um, I spent, you know, there would be time. Like one case in particular, I interviewed a girl who was 14, pregnant and 14, and her boyfriend was like 20. Um, and when I went to interview her, I was walking through her apartment complex. I had to wade through these brothers, these gang brothers. They were packing. I mean, but I have learned to put on a poker face and not, not you know, yeah, show that I'm nervous or something. I went into the apartment, sat down. I'm sitting with this sweet little girl interviewing her, and I just happened to kick something under the couch. And I kind of looked down. Girl, there's all these guns under the couch. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and wow. then, she's, then she said to me, you know, I didn't know I could get pregnant on my birthday. And I said, where did that come from? She said, well, my boyfriend had told me that. Like, you can't get pregnant on your birthday. Oh, my goodness. And she believed it. And all kinds of other strange things. And the more she told me her story, the more frightened I got for that girl. 14 years old. And that was one of those times I wanted to kidnap her. <laughs> I wanted to take her home with me so bad because I said, this is, I mean, I, I was watching everything around. It was a very yeah. dangerous environment. But I've been in that kind of situation a lot. And other times, you know, they're perfectly normal households, you know, adorable spaces to be. But I find um, as an academic, I can't just do classroom stuff. And because I'm so devoted to my black community, I want to do work where I talk directly ask the questions get them to reveal to me what matters to them what concerns they have and so that's what I love about the work that I do and you are very passionate about it if you could see what I see sitting across from Mm. from Dr. McDonald I mean it's so the passion is just pouring out of you just in your facial expressions and you know and everything and thank you for being dedicated to doing this work Thank you. you know. I, I love my black people. I'm not shy about it. And I love all people. You know, so it's not about um, denying anyone else anything. Yeah. I have I, I have been engaged in all kinds of things, both um, professionally and personally, with people from all spectrums. But in my heart lies my people. I want more than anything to see us thrive. That's, yeah, that's all I want. I want us to be able to just live without fear, live without deep concern so much, you know, and just enjoy one another. That's the final word.
That's the final word. Thank you so much, Dr. Katrina Bell McDonald, for gracing the mic with your presence, both on the mic and in the studio. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. Now, the conversation can continue. Uh, If you come to Underground Books today from two to four, you can hear Dr. Bell McDonald um, speaking about her book, Marriage in Black, The Pursuit of Married Life Among American Born and Immigrant Blacks. I'll have about 25, 30 copies on me okay. uh, to sell if anybody's interested. You'll have 24 because I'm, <laughs> I'm getting mine because it, it sounds like a very interesting study. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether you're married or single or whatever it is, still being able to have that understanding of right. what people are thinking when it comes to marriage. I want to clarify, I am not an advocate of marriage. I'm, right. one, I'm not one of these people that everybody should be married. You right. should be married. I just say those who are married need to be supported. If you want to do it, let's let's help you do it right. Absolutely. By the way, I'll be married 25 years this summer. Oh, congratulations. (laughs) That's awesome. This is what Full Circle is all about, having these conversations right here. This is the platform to do it. Just want to thank you for your support each and every week, for listening, for tuning in, for emailing and and sending comments through Facebook about how much you're enjoying the show. Don't forget, if you ever have a a show topic or a potential guest, remember, this show is not a two-hour commercial for their product or service. It is how are you empowering black women so if you know someone that may be a good fit for the show make sure you email me at fullcircle975 at gmail.com also don't forget to like and share our Facebook page and you can always catch past episodes on SoundCloud if you go to fullcircle underscore Ms. Juan oh and by the way Full Circle is now on Apple Podcasts yes we are also on Spotify you will be able to find past episodes there um, as well so again Again, the word is spreading. We need you to help spread the word and to continue to support the show. This is Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda. Stay tuned each and every week. We have more conversation just like this. Peace. God bless. We'll see you next week. Show your support for the show by liking and sharing our Facebook page at Full Circle 97.5.